not usual for me to have to raise up the, uh, the lectern a little bit. <coughs> Train yourself for godliness. For while the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. If there is one thing that we have to take away from this message is Paul's instructions of verse 7 and 8. <coughs> See, I remember the days when I was a little bit thinner and a little bit fitter, when I used to play rugby for a local Gloucester side. And there are times that when we had to go out on the pitch on a Saturday morning to train, and we used to train really hard, running and exercising until we were nearly physically sick, that our lungs were burning and our arms and legs would feel like they would drop off. See, if we were rugby training in ancient Greece, then onlookers might say that we were gymnazo, or exercising vigorously, lungs busting and dripping with sweat. See, this picture of training, gymnazo, is what Paul is instructing when he commands Timothy to train yourself for godliness. Push yourself, Timothy. Bust along. Though the command Paul gives is given to Timothy, the pursuit of godliness is for every Christian believer. Yet, by commanding Timothy and not the whole church, there is an implication that says there are certain persons that should be expected or are called to train harder than others. In verse 17 of chapter 5, the next chapter, it says that elders who are worthy of double honor, most of all those who labor to the point of weariness in preaching and teaching. Some, especially teachers, are called to labor harder in God's word than others. And we'll begin by looking at what this training involves. Verse 6, if you put these things before your bro uh, the brothers, you will be a good servant of, Je uh, of Christ Jesus. Being trained, and I know that I heard that the, in the NIV it says being brought up, but the actual word is sex, being trained. It's the same word in verse 7. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. If you put all these things, says Paul, all what I have been teaching in this letter, before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ. By being a faithful servant, Timothy is demonstrating that he is being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. And just so that we are clear, Good doctrine it is simply good teaching, sound knowledge of the scriptures. A related word you might have heard is theology. It's just the study of God. And words of the faith refers to the teaching of the apostles in addition to the Old Testament. So the New Testament is included as well as the Old. We're going back to, to verse 6. 
I want us to look closely at that word trained because I think it will shed light, uh, more light on, on the word that we will, which, has, which is our takeaway verses of 7 and 8. Now it doesn't matter if, you, if you're not that familiar with grammar, but bear with us. See, the word trained is in the present tense. Okay, it's in the present tense. Being in the present tense means that it is right to say being trained. It tells us it is a continual practice of what Timothy knows. It's the ongoing application of knowledge. And the word trained is also in the passive voice. And we learn what we learn from the, the passive voice is subtle, but it is important to understand. See, being passive means that it's not doing anything. Instead, of, uh, um, instead, something else is doing something to it. Something other than the training is doing the work. Therefore, in verse 6, it is not Timothy who is doing the training. He is the one being acted upon. And so we can confidently say that the training is not merely us getting to know our Bibles better. To be trained is also to allow the Bible to act upon you. And being passive, though, doesn't mean that for Timothy and for us that we should sit back and do nothing. Because in the very next verse, Paul's command to train is in the active voice. Now, Timothy is the one actively engaged in doing the work. See, the words of faith and good doctrine do not come out of the air. They don't appear in our minds through osmosis. They are not produced just by discussion and opinion. They are there doing the active work because Timothy has followed them. Followed them in the sense of investigating, acquiring knowledge um, of them. So to, to recap briefly, we could read verse 6 like this. Being trained by the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. See, it's easier than to understand what is involved when Paul commands us, or Timothy, train yourself to godliness. He's saying, study God's word as hard as you can, so that through knowing more and understanding it better, the word of God may do its work in producing godliness in you. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. It does things. And this should blow away any misconception that doctrine and theology is merely head knowledge of secondary importance, of just an optional thing to choose concerning spiritual growth. Paul is saying that instead, sound doctrine and good theology is at the very heart of the transformation of the sinner to holiness. And it's the sound teaching of God's word 
that is the focus not only of this chapter, but of Timothy's whole letter, oh, the letter to Timothy. There is a major issue of false teachers at Ephesus that Paul has asked Timothy to sort out. Because false teaching, an incomplete or incorrect understanding of God's word, cannot produce godliness. It will only lead people to sin at best and depart from the faith at worst. Let's glance back to chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from uh, God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's saying that by stopping the poison of the false teaching, then the desired end product of love will blossom. Godliness is the desired outcome of our passage today. And there is nothing more godly than to love. So this is what it's all about. Godliness and sound teaching. Teaching that is in harmony with the gospel. At the end of chapter 3, we, we see that relationship between godliness and truth reinforced in the broader context of the church. Verse 14 of chapter 3. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, Paul states that the reason he is writing these things is because he is concerned for the godliness of the church, of the living God. And it is the church that upholds and defends the truth. See, a church that behaves according to sound teaching is godly. And a godly, loving church comes from sound teaching. Therefore, the command to Timothy to train himself for godliness is so that the church, so that the church may receive sound doctrine. And as that's the case, we can see how most of us may fit into this letter, that we look to sit under the sound teaching of doctrine from those who labor in it. See, the reality is that we're not all teachers. There are some in this church who can understand and they can handle God's word more comprehensively than others. But each of us are to expect to be taught and taught well by those who do handle God's word. It doesn't make those who teach any more special uh, any, any more special than anybody else, but they are servants of a critical ministry of the church. Yet this is not an excuse for us to s who sit under the teaching 
to be lazy, to be spoon-fed, unthinking sheep. There is nothing more critical in the life of a professing Christian than to obey this command to train for godliness. Though each one of us may not be called to labor to the point of weariness, because we may have full-time jobs, we have different abilities and gifts and roles to fulfill, there is a duty and an urgency to exercise our own hearts and our own minds in the study and reading of Scripture. See, we are reminded that it is the church that is the buttress and pillar of truth. Not just a Timothy, not just the elders, but all of us. What is it about this command to train for godliness that makes it such a critical ministry for the church? The value of godliness. Let's focus again back on chapter 4. So we have thought through about the process of training yourself in godliness. Paul now goes on to give us the motivation and reason why we should in verse 8. He says, train yourself for godliness for, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, we're all aware of the effects of physical bodily training. The positive effects, it can increase our stamina, can make us more alert, can even stave off some illnesses and so on. But godliness is of value in every way. For everything that really matters and counts. The, the value of godness, godliness is valuable because of one important fact. Godliness holds promise. Not only for our present life, but also for the life to come. What does it mean for, for godliness to hold promise? It doesn't mean that by acting godly that we gain or take hold of promise. Godliness, rather, is the response of having received the promise already. See, by pursuing godliness, we are shown, or we are shown to own or possess promise. See, imagine a, a young mum or dad in a town with their three-year-old toddler. And then for some reason, the, the toddler uh, starts screaming and uh, starts having a tantrum. They drop their body onto the floor and start kicking and screaming and waving their arms and legs. Acute embarrassment hits the parent, obviously, their face feeling flushed. There is one of two options. Quietly hide behind an adjacent aisle and hope that nobody thinks that child is yours. Or go and take ownership by picking up the child and dealing with him in the best way that you can. We'd expect and hope that the parent would go to the child. See, the response of the parent shows that the child is theirs. 
so too Christians do not disown God by living in a way that the world does, hiding behind, a, a, in a metaphorical sense, an aisle. Instead, the Christian instead pursues godliness as a result of already belonging to God. Therefore, godliness is the bringing into fulfillment of what God wills for us, what he has promised us. It is ours to own, so own it. And that is of every value for this life and for the life to come. All that God has declared that he will do for his people. The promise of new life, the forgiveness of sins, the transformation of our bodies. See, godliness not only affirms our position and standing before God as his beloved child, but he begins to live in us by his Holy Spirit. His word is written on our hearts. He gives us hope. He starts work on transforming and restoring true humanity in us, restoring that image of God, releasing us from guilt and the bondage of sin and enabling us to love one another for this present life and for the life to come when we will be able to fully behold the sight of the glory of God and live that we will be like him, for we shall be transformed completely as a final act of redemption of our sinful bodies to godly, imperishable ones. Godliness possesses promise. We are becoming what we finally will be. We're living out the reality. If we are not becoming what we finally will be, and ask, what confidence have we that we own these wonderful promises? Paul goes on to say in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. See this outcome, the taking hold of the promise of God in our lives, in godliness, is worth every ounce of effort and energy. And not because what we can achieve by it, because we have set our hope on the living God, verse 10, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. The value of godliness is nothing if it doesn't lead anywhere. But it is of every value because God will take those who are pursuing godliness and bring them to completion what he has started in them. He will not abandon us at the last hour. He is faithful to keep his promises. So we will pursue now until he comes again. It is worth it for none of our toil and striving will be wasted because God saves those who are his. So we know God is of every value in every way and why godliness matters so much. And we know what brings about godliness in a believer's life. What, ha what happens, though? What happens when good doctrine turns to bad doctrine? When good teaching turns to false teaching? Well, godliness is at stake. And so, too, then, is our salvation. 
Paul gives none other than his troubleshooting, faithful, gifted protege, Timothy, to fix it. And it would be wrong of us to think that we, as a church, are immune from this kind of issue. See, the problems can, only st- uh, can start with only slight deviations from the truth. That at first might appear of little relevance or consequence. But think of a, a, a sail in a wind. See, when it is set straight into the wind, the boat doesn't deviate at all. But as soon as the sail is deviated a little bit, it catches the wind. And before you know it, more of the sail is caught and the effects become huge. It is of utmost importance that we're aware of the reality of false teaching and what it looks like and what it looks like. So we can be helped to identify it and keep that sail set straight in the wind. See, Paul refers to the correction of false teachers as waging war and fighting the good fight. It's a battle. Well, let's take a look at a couple of examples in 1 Timothy. Looking back again to chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship that is uh, from God, that is by faith. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Any false teaching promotes speculation. Lesson one. See, there is no place in church for somebody to make confident assertions as if they are teaching authoritatively without being able to back it up by Scripture. See, we can talk about God all day long. We can have opinions about salvation. And we can confidently speak about the gospel. But unless what we say can be shown to be rooted in the teaching of Scripture, then our alarm bells should sound. Like fiction stories, we can make things up as we go along. And so too false teachers do. Speculation starts with, I believe, rather than good stewardship of God's word, which begins with, I know. The question for us to ask is, what does the Bible say? See, observe that the false teachers want to be teachers of the law, in verse 8. Paul says that we know that the law is good. See, they're not wanting to teach anything which is blatantly in opposition to the church or things that you would expect to hear. See, the problem arises because the false teacher does not know how to handle the Bible correctly. Verse 8 says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. See, sound doctrine is in harmony with the gospel, says in verse 11. All teaching should agree with gospel truth. And so we see this in the situation of false teachers, that they either do not understand or they refuse to acknowledge 
that in the light of the gospel truth, the law no longer applies to the justified. Those who have already been declared righteous by God through faith. It is by grace that we are saved, not by teaching and adherence to the law. See, false teachers do not filter their knowledge through the gospel. And so they're really without any understanding. See, the gospel is the revelation of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the lens through which our understanding of the whole of Scripture and all of creation comes from. False teaching cannot be backed up. It promotes speculation. A false teacher will know, not know how to handle the Bible correctly. And false teachers do not handle the words correctly because their knowledge isn't shaped through an understanding of the gospel. Now let's take a look at chapter 4. Consider what the false teachers are doing here. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars and whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, they're forbidding marriage and food. They're requiring to forgo that which God has created, marriage and food. This is typically known as asceticism. Denying oneself for, uh, uh, for a deeper spirituality. It's an attempt to live a godly life. And the word asceticism comes from another Greek word, and guess what? Also means to train. So here we have teachers who are promoting training that apparently leads to godliness. It's remarkably similar, isn't it, to what Paul is instructing Timothy in the, in the later verses. It may appear to be similar, but it couldn't be any more different. See, on the sur surface, it looks plausible and good. But look at what is lurking underneath. Deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Here, under the guise of pursuing godliness, is a, a devotion to demonic doctrine. And this should really make us shudder and sit up to be attentive and alert. There is a devouring lion roaming freely. Demonic forces uses people to propagate untruth. Untruth that would subvert the living word and bring death to godliness in the life of the church. See, let us not kid ourselves. Satan's influence reaches even into church. He seeks to derail the pursuit of godliness. So let us consider this example in light of the gospel, the thing that we should do to test all teaching. So the gospel is the effective grace of God alone to rescue sinners, and not only, not only that, but to sanctify them too. 
to bring about godliness in that person. Demonic teaching will say that that isn't true. It will say that if you want to be godly, you can obtain it through your own efforts. And this teaching plays right into the hands of those who want to retain control over their lives and their destiny. To not live a life indebted to God. To not admit that they are utterly wretched. It is people who cannot receive the truth that will depart from the faith and follow what their heart and itching ears want to hear. Rather than rejecting the correct response of thanksgiving to the good gifts of marriage and food given by God is expected, verse 3, by who believe and know the truth. What informs us that thanksgiving is right, is the right response, is the word of God and prayer. See, it says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. God declares that which is created good as good. In a similar sense as he did after each creation event in Genesis. And he saw that it was good. See, false teaching results in the rejection of what is good. At its heart, this is known as blasphemy. To deny what God declares as right. So the principle for us to take away and understand is that we only know what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, through what God says. It is the authority of Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, expressed in the scriptures, that declares, defines, and teaches what is right. If we reject what he says is true, then we are listening to false teachers and devoting ourselves to demonic doctrine. False teaching drives us away from being trained in godliness. Godliness, remember, that holds promise. Training in godliness requires us to have knowledge of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine does a work in us to bring about godliness. Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for this life and the life to come. Therefore, we should teach sound doctrine and call out false teaching because it is a matter of life and death. And the implications of this conclusion is exactly what we see uh, Paul lay out in verses 11 to 16 of chapter 4. Command and teach these things, he says. It's not an option for Timothy. He's got to do it. And he is to do it from a position of integrity. He is to devote, practice, persist. He's got to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to preaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them to get better and better. And finally, persist in it. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's a matter of salvation. The implications for us as a church are huge. 
we need to start by the very words in this passage, which are in and of themselves sound doctrine. The greatest responsibility does lie on the shoulders of the elders. And boy, have I really felt the weight of this word whilst preparing. Pray for the elders. Pray for also Chris and Graham as they spend time with us. That we who are responsible with God's word in our role to care and feed and protect you. We're to remember that not everyone is to labor and toil and strive to the same degree. But those in a position of teaching at Abbey have a great responsibility. We need to look at how we are equipping, training and teaching God's word to those who are teaching God's word. We as a church need to evaluate our priorities. Are we a church that holds promise in our pursuit of godliness? See, if we are, then we know that what, we, uh, what must be done. Where are we going to invest our time, effort and money? Are we going to be willing and motivated to, to seek a discipling relationship? Not a social friendship, but a relationship that will bring about a greater understanding of the truth. Even Timothy, the teacher, was instructed to practice these things. Are we in a position of teaching? Willing, uh, of teaching, willing always to be learning. All of us are to train in godliness. Are we willing to be instructed by God's word and the teachers of it and to allow it to transform us? I want to close with the prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from John 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I do not only ask for these, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. That is you. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is praying for us. He is praying that his word may change us. Therefore, Abbey Church, let's receive and live out that prayer of our Lord and Savior and train for godliness.